welcome to the Historical Materialism podcast, episode two. My name is Lucas Lodhus. My name is Ashok Kumar. And I'm Michael Roberts, who's here to join you today. Thanks, Michael, for joining us. The paper we're looking at today, uh, Michael is uh, one of the authors, along with Yelmo Kocera. Uh, it's uh, The Economics of Modern Imperialism. Michael is the author of a number of books, including The Great Recession, The Long Depression. He's jointly edited with, with Guillermo a book, uh, The World in Crisis. And he has a, a forthcoming book with Guillermo called 21st Century Capitalism Through the Prism of Value, which comes out this summer. And this paper is kind of part of that larger discussion. I guess before we start, I just kind of want to say that this paper, which we've made open access, and I encourage everyone to read, it's excellent. Uh, is part of the newest historical materialism journal, 29.4, which is now out, uh, and contains other pieces from Adam and Ia on financialization and finance capital in the U.S. oil industry, Vladimir Tikhonov on post-Soviet Russian Marxism, and it's got an editorial perspective from one of our editorial board members on fascism and its relationship to the state, and that's from Alberto Toscano. It's got many other great pieces, so check it out. And now on to the economics of modern imperialism, uh, which looks at uh, modern economic aspects of imperialism, but through the prism of Marxist labor theory of value. Um, and, and this isn't to say there aren't other uh, non-direct economic forms uh, in which imperialism is reproduced, such as the military or political or ideological or cultural. But here we're looking at, um, and here what Michael and, and Guillermo are looking at is um, how economies determine these features of imperialism. And, and many people are using colonialism and imperialism interchangeably. So I thought it would be, it's kind of, it might be important that we uh, make that distinction a bit early. In the piece, you define this distinction, but I, I like this quote from Kwame Nkrumah from his book, Revolutionary Path, where he draws out some of the differences between these concepts. And he says, they're not mere words. They are concrete manifestations of a world outlook. Colonialism is that aspect of imperialism, which is in a territory of, of alien government. That government controls the social and economic political life and political life of the people it governs. What he calls neocolonialism is the granting of political independence minus economic independence, independence. That is to say, independence that makes a state colonial power economical. And finally, he states that imperialism is nothing but finance capital run wild in countries other than its own. I mean, but you define imperialism in the paper, Michael, as first as, as the persistent and long-term net appropriation of surplus value by high-technology imperialist countries from the low-technology-dominated countries. Later, more specifically in the paper, you say that economic imperialism is the appreciation of high-technology companies from low-technology companies in different countries. You place this process within the secular tendential fall in profitability, both in the imperialist countries, but also in the dominated ones. Here you place persistent unequal levels of techno technology as the necessary condition for persistent appropriation of surplus value and modern imperialism. So first, could you please explain in the simplest way the tendency to fall in profitability and its relationship to imperialism? Well, let me first say, I think I agree with what Kumar has defined as the difference between the old colonialism or the old imperialism and neo-colonialism, and modern imperialism, if you like, because imperialist uh, countries and governments no longer control directly, in general, not entirely, politically and uh, through their own government imposed upon the peoples of uh, the, the countries that are being dominated. They operate through multinationals, and as, as you pointed out, as Lenin said, through the activities of finance capital internationally to dominate countries around the world. And... Um, so this, pa this paper, this article in historical materialism is concentrating on the economics of imperialism because uh, partly because uh, we think we should draw a, a clear understanding of what's going on there because it's the driving force behind uh, imperialist activity internationally. I mean, what is the point of imperialist and finance capital? What are they after? They're after more profit. They're trying to drive up the amount of profit they can get out of extracting from the uh, labor and activity of people around the world. The process of expansion throughout the world is virtually completed by capitalism. And it hasn't 
come about in a harmonious way. It's come in a way in which there's a small group of companies and companies that are dominating the world uh, and controlling the economic uh, activities of other countries and companies around the world. And so what this paper is about is how do they dominate? How does that operate economically? And how does that lead to the extraction of huge amounts of value and wealth from what we now call the global south to the global north? And the fundamental argument that we make in the paper is that we can go use Marx's theory of value, law of value, and his law of the tendency of the rate of probability to fall to understand this process of transfer of value from the dominated to the dominating, what we call in the paper the dominated countries and the imperialist uh, countries or bloc. And the fundamental activity going on here is that capitalists are competing against each other around the world, both internally, of course, but also now externally through trade, through the distribution of capital, and in, to, in order to try and increase the amount of profitability they get. All profit comes from the activities of workers. Then profit, new profit is only created by human labor power exerting that activity. And the control of that human labor power, the products that they produce, the services that they produce, are commodified and sold on the market. And the argument of the paper is, as Marx explains when he's looking at uh, an economy, because Marx's capital is not really about a national economy, it's about an economy. And that can mean an international economy on a closed basis, is that there's a transfer of value takes place between those who are dominated to those who dominate because the dominated companies or countries have generally a higher level of activity of technological capability. So the time that they take to produce something, the same commodity that they're selling on the market is less so that they can undercut at the international product price uh, the weaker capitalist economies with their lower technological level. So there tends to be a transfer. The point about the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall is that overall, through this process of of movement of uh, profits, competing on markets between different capitalists, there, there tends towards an average rate of profit. That's a tendency. It doesn't At any one time, there is no average. There's always different profit rates. But there's a tendency taking place. Now, that the capitalists are driving up, trying to drive up their profitability. In so doing, they tend to invest more and more in technology relative to what they invest in labor. Yes, down in the global south, they're using cheap labor and so on. But though capitalists there are trying to increase their uh, productive power and profitability through extending uh, technical production and new machinery and technology, laying off labor if they can in order to increase the profitability they get. But if everybody, all capitalists are doing that, there's a tendency for the increase in investment in machinery, technology, what we might call what Marx called constant capital as opposed to labor. So there's a rise in constant capital relative to the rise in the amount invested in labor. He called that rise, he called that a long-term fact about capitalism, namely a rise in the organic composition of capital. That's a trend, a tendency which takes place virtually all the time. The pressure is on. In so doing, that very rise in the organic composition of capital, unless counteracted by a huge explosion in exploitation of, of labor force around the world, or an expansion of the labor force to exploit will lead, tend to lead eventually to a fall in the overall average rate of profit in an economy. And now we're talking about the world. So therefore, in a whole world, you can talk about an average rate of profit, which tends to fall over time. And that means, what does that mean? Just think about it, uh, listeners. It means that capitalism is finding it more and more difficult to develop the productive forces because the profitability that they're getting from developing it, investing and exploiting workers, is falling. So capitalism has a long-term crisis. It it shows that capitalism cannot go on forever because the profitability that it's creating cannot rise and, in fact, is tending to go down. And the other aspect of the law is it tends to lead to a series of crises or slumps on a regular and recurring basis. So there are two aspects or results of the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. 
namely that it suggests over the long term capitalism will not survive, at least economically. And in the short term, if you like, there is a series of cycles. So there's a short term aspect to it and a long term aspect. I have to say, listeners, that uh, Marxists disagree on this entire completely from beginning to end. Uh, one group of Marxists, if they accept the law as being re- relevant to what I've just talked about, they see it as a long-term process. It's not to do with crises that are taking place on every eight to ten years. Then there's another group of Marxists who say it's not a long-term issue. It creates crises every eight to ten years. In my view, it's both, and that we can we can use uh, the law to explain both those processes: the longer-term secular trend and also what's happening on a on a cyclical basis over a period of eight to ten years or whatever. So. So that that is the basis of of what leads us to the question of what's going on in terms of the world economy and imperialism. Thanks, Michael. That's a very good primer. Um, uh, We will definitely revisit a few questions on this tendency and why it's so contested uh, in a bit. Would it be the case that any relative technologically advanced country playing playing an extractive role against a relative technologically weaker country, uh, would that be imperialism? So, for example... Uh, in that case, would South American or South Asian uh, or African BRICS uh, would they would BRICS countries be imperialist against their weaker neighbors? Uh, would China be an imperialist country against Asian and African nations? You argued that the U.S. is imperialist and, then, and China is not, but I mean, I kind of I'm I'm curious to know how that reconciles with your definition. And I would just say that one of the problems with this sort of imperialism and dominated countries binary sometimes is that it feels like it. And one of the criticisms is that it, it feels like it kind of flattens out relations, similar to critiques that people have had of, say, dependency theory, which I think I feel like a lot of your piece shares, especially when it comes to the technology question. So, um, so this is useful when discussing the relationship between, say, the G7 versus BRICS. But what about, say, the BRICS and their periphery? Very good question, Ashok. Um, we started off when we started off this research we started off with, in, in, I would say, with an open mind on this particular question about whether we could talk about, as you like, a spectrum of imperialist countries. Or the common theoretical position now, I think, amongst uh, Marxist economists is the argument of what they call sub-imperialism, that, that actually we've got uh, Brazil is exploited by the United States, and in that relation, the United States is a dominated economy, dominating economy, and Brazil is a dominated. But Brazil exploits, say, I don't know, Paraguay or anybody near that because of their investments there. The argument, particularly often used for South Africa, which South Africa is actually playing a role of imperialism in its particular Southern African region. And we can think of other countries like the BRICS who are in that position, uh, Russia with its satellites and so on, perhaps. So... We, we were sympathetic to the idea of sub-imperialism. But when we looked at the data and when we analysed it, we didn't find that that really existed. Yes, there are slight differences in the uh, extra- uh, transfer of surplus value between, say, China and some of the other uh, lower-ranked uh, Asian countries, but it's quite small compared to the huge transfer of surplus value that goes from China to the imperialist countries. And when we did the spectrum on all the measures that we made, we, we were staggered to find that basically there are the G7 plus a few other countries, almost no more than 13, are so far ahead in the extraction that they're making surplus value and in other credits and other capital flows back to them compared to the rest of the world, you could really define that as an imperialist block. And that the other countries, including the BRICS, really were nowhere in the in the running, including China, when it came to the transfer of value in the process of trade and investment that's going on uh, around the world. Now, so there are differences. I mean, we actually produce in the paper the difference that China makes a little bit of surplus value, net surplus value extraction from some of the other countries in the world, but it's tiny, as I say, compared to what the huge extraction. I mean, it's not just our work, but Daniel Ricci has presented a paper which he does a different method of, uh, of looking at the transfer of values. And his evidence shows quite st- how huge China's negative transfer is to uh, the United States and the, the global north and, and other countries. In fact, the bigger your trade you have, the more extraction of value 
uh, takes place to the imperialist bloc. And I'd add another factor too. When we look at the period, say when Lenin wrote 1915's imperialism book, when he talked about uh, the question of the, uh, and the imperialist bloc and the, a small group, if you like, monopoly capital, it was called. I'm not a great fan of that phrase, but the idea of a small core of imperialist countries against the rest. Has it changed in 100 years? No. If we look at the evidence, the GDP gap per capita between the majority of the world and this imperialist bloc has not altered at all, with the exception of China, to a lesser extent India. But everybody else, there's been no change, really. Uh, so the gaps that existed 100 years ago haven't altered. So imperialism is self-reinforcing, and it's still the same the same usual suspects that existed in 1915 that exist in, in 2015. So somewhat to our surprise, we came to the conclusion that we really couldn't talk about a spectrum of, of imperialist, part imperialist and you're not imperialist idea, that we could clearly delineate one imperialist block against the rest, more or less, sufficiently to make it a pretty firm conclusion that we reached. For example, that China isn't imperialist. On this definition, we're only talking about the economics of modern imperialism. And on this definition, China didn't fit the bill, or at least on our definition. You could say our definitions are wrong. Um, we're saying the extraction of surplus value, the, the movement of uh, profits and repatriation of profits, other credits, returns on portfolio investment, all those factors, the value chain and so on. Who's losing out? China loses out just as much, if not more, than other countries in what we call the, the dominated part of the world. I think that it's quite a compelling image. I, I wanted to ask you about, well, rapidly, obviously, China's catching up with the, with the kind of, with some of the high-tech countries like the US and how the organic composition of capital is approaching. There's a graph in the, in the paper as well, where I think it, it becomes very obvious just how quickly the, the kind of catching up with, with the US's organic or the kind of mirroring of the US's organic composition of capital happens. What would you say is the prospect for that position of China to that change? I mean, what is that kind of structurally possible? Just if we think of the US debts held in, in China and so on, like, is it possible for China then to move out of that position? Or do you, would you say there's something structural on your analysis, something kind of structurally impeding I think, that? Uh, well, if we expect that, uh, perhaps we could do it. As, is China going to catch up the U, catch up with the US because it's fast growing on the technology and the expansion? In my opinion, no. It's, if we look at the latest position in terms of productivity, labor productivity, that's the amount of uh, production per uh, worker, in China, they're about 25% of the US productivity. And it's been a massive jump from four or 5% only 40 years ago. But I, worked, I just made a calculation on the basis of per capita productivity forecasts and trends up to now. When will China go to 100%? Not, not any earlier than 2060 is the, is the result of what you do when the extrapolation. My gosh, that's 40 years, listeners. Uh, what the heck is going to happen in the next four decades? Uh, and there's a lot of things uh, that the American imperialism is doing to make sure that never happens over the next uh, four decades. And economically, it's very difficult to see. There are lots of issues about what we have to consider is going to happen in that period. So, yes, and if China's done the best, all the other in the global south or dominated bloc their relationship in labour productivity levels, anyway, is pathetic. I mean, even the best, if you want to talk about middle income, you know, some of the Asian countries, fairly good productivity, Korea and so on, but they're still some way behind the US. It's difficult to see them making progress. And certainly when it comes to the vast swathes of South America, of Africa, of Southern Asia, and other, they're making no progress at all in reducing that gap. That's labour productivity. Organic compositions of capital are higher in the dominated block, and it's not it's not surprising because they've got quite a low level of uh, labour force when we're talking about actual compensation. The amount of money going towards the workforces of the global south is low, but that's going to take an awful long time for that process to produce a result in terms of equalising incomes and per capita income and per capita productivity of labour over the next few decades. In fact, in my view, it cannot happen. 
It's just too far apart. The only way this is going to change is by the overthrow of imperialism. Imperialism will maintain this gap by hook or crook, not maybe as much as now, but we can also see that the, the serious rival to the United States is already under pressure now. China is now going to be cornered and uh, curbed as best uh, imperialism can do. Thanks, Michael. Um, I want to sort of shift gears a little bit, but in a connected way. One of the criticisms I think that could be made about the piece is that it's economistic. Can imperial relations be so simply reduced to the falling rate of profit? What about inter-imperial rivalry? Is the war in Iraq imperialism? If not, why not? If so, can it genuinely be explained through the falling rate of profit? Your piece is very empirical to support the theory. I mean, that's one of the really good, really good parts about it. And, and, um, and you do talk a little bit about imperialist blocks sort of working together in a hegemonic way uh, through sort of ac- economic or otherwise. But this kind of contradictory relationship between states isn't really engaged with beyond that. And I know that's not necessarily the scope of the, of the piece. And that's why I kind of want to uh, see what you feel about that. And I also wanted you to kind of situate your paper and its theories against or amongst new imperialism de- debates from around the sort of 2000s. I'm thinking specifically about David Harvey or Ian e. e. Wood's interventions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, you're right, Ashok. Of course, it's, it doesn't cover all the aspects of imperialism. Possibly, you might even argue, not the most important ones. But we, we decided that we would concentrate on the economic foundations of the imperialist process. And we wanted to provide empirical backing to the argument that the process takes place through a transfer of surplus value between nations and companies based on the technological superiority of the imperialist bloc, which is counteracted, by the way, by the global South capitalists attempting to drive the workers' wages in their countries to the lowest level so they can raise the rate of surplus value to counteract the fact that they're in a weak position when it comes to competing on world markets with the imperialist bloc. The only way they can compete is by driving their own workers' wages down to the low level. It's often said that the multinationals are exploiting the workers of the world. That's that's true. But actually, it's also the capitalists of the global south are exploiting their own workers, if not worse, uh, than the multinationals in many cases. And they have to do that in order to try and maintain their levels of profitability, given that there is a serious technological disadvantage. And in our paper, we actually try to measure these two factors, which is the most important in the transfer of surplus value. We found that the organic composition of capital, in other words, the technological superiority, is about 60% of the contribution on the whole over this period that we've got, I think, from about, uh, well, it varies, but quite a long period, is the, is the basis of contribution of the transfer of surplus value between the dominated block and the imperialist block. But 40% and growing is the fact that the dominated block has a higher rate of surplus value through exploiting their workers, and they can they can therefore survive. The result is that the dominating block, the imperialist block, gets extra surplus value in the trade because of the vicious exploitation by the global south capitalists. So imperialism is well supported by the global south capitalists as a reaction against their inability to compete with the imperialist core. And so that, but that's the sort of thing we were concentrating on. But there are so many other factors involved in imperialism, as you say, and just to say that it's not that the rate of profit is the is a sort of reduced level to everything. We're not saying that. In fact, in the paper, we have quite a lot of other flows that take place and aren't related just to trade, which is where the rate of profit plays its role. But what happens after trade when there's an accumulation of funds that's repatriated, there's a reinvestment of funds, there's exchange rates, controls of exchange rates can also produce a, a shift of value uh, that affects market prices. So you can see when you have a massive increase in oil prices, which you do at the moment, there's going to be a huge boost boost to profit of the uh, energy-rich uh, economies as a result. But that's partly an exchange rate process or a temporary one. We also look at, we wanted to see at the long-term process going on underneath, which is related to the profitability and the technology relative technologies of countries and the relative exploitations going on in each country. So that's the economic foundations. But there are so many other factors in imperialism. As you mentioned, the military oppression is very important. Tony Norfield does a a little 
index, which he calls the index of, I think, of index of imperialism or index of power. And he lists a number of factors. He lists trade, obviously. He lists uh, GDP size. He lists the finance, size of the finance sector. And he, he lists the size of the military sector in each of the countries. And when you look at the imperialist core, suddenly, I mean, China's in there with a bit of military. But the rest of it has got is not so great. Its finance and its uh, GDP is high, but it's uh, obviously a big population. But the US is miles ahead. Britain and France are there. These are the key imperialist powers because they also have a military force. A military force can be very powerful in uh, deciding issues in imperialist rivalries. We see this in Ukraine now. The issue is going to be decided, at least it would appear, possibly by military force. The same thing applies to China in the South China Sea and Taiwan. These issues are not going to be solved by some sort of trade agreement, allowing a redistribution of uh, value being produced, but possibly by military force or other sorts of sanctions of that nature. So imperialism isn't just determined by profits or by the economy. It's also got all these other factors involved. But what we would say is all these political factors, all these decisions made politically, militarily, politically, soft power, alliances, agreements, What's behind them? Behind them is to preserve the profitability of the imperialist bloc relative to the rest of the world. And therefore, we have to understand how that profitability is is arising, how it's appearing, where it's coming from, what direction it's going on, in order to recognise that that is the foundation of all these other political and military and strategic decisions made by the imperialist powers and their various agencies. In the paper as well, you talk about how following Marx as well, that this is, and you've emphasized this, how it's a, it's a tendency, you know, it's not a it's straight line without any oscillation. And you talk about how, for example, in the period of neoliberal reforms, for example, the rate of profit still is falling, but it's not falling as fast, or it might not well, actually it, even be falling. It actually rises during the neoliberal period. The argument here is, uh, like I said, that the law says that there's a tendency for the rate of profit fall, but there are also counter tendencies which are driving up the rate of exploitation, increasing foreign trade, expanding the labour force, doing some financial engineering, various uh, measures that Marx talks about in the counteracting factors. And during the neoliberal period, by destroying the trade unions, privatising, introduced deregulating the economy, weakening the ability of workers to fight, all of the other things that happened in the neoliberal period, we actually saw a rise in the rate of profit in the major economies from about early 1980s up to the end of the 20th century. But that rise didn't restore the levels of profitability that we saw in the 1960s and the so-called golden age, as we call it, when profitability was high, employment was there, production was high after the Second World War. We saw a recovery in the profitability after, into the 21st century. That is, that's peaked. And after the Great Recession in 2008, it slipped back again. And after COVID, it's now somewhere near the lows we've seen in the last uh, 60 years. In a recent post on my blog, I discussed the latest developments in the world rate of profit from work done by Dick Pakar Basu and other people at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, which uh, complemented other work that I've done and other uh, researchers have done over the past period to show that that long-term tendency, in, in the book that was mentioned by Ashok, World in Crisis, We've got up to 14 different Marxist economists in different parts of the world who show this long-term tendency. But they also show, as you say, Lukas, a different period in the, in the neoliberal period. So it's never in a straight line. This is not some crude theory where it's just like a straight down a hill in a lateral decline. There, there's these forces between tendency and counter-tendency play which change what's happening to the rate of profit over the period of time. What are the kind of different strategies for the or the imperialist countries to counteract the the continuation of the decline then? So they could either increase the rate of exploitation. I mean, could you talk us through some of the some of the Guys, this strategies? Is a bit of speculation here, but it seems to me in many ways we're in a position that we were in the when Lenin wrote the book Imperialism, that what we had at the end of the 19th century depression. There was a depression in the major capitalist economies between 1873 and the early 90s, depending on the country. That created the conditions where they came out of that for a desire to colonize the world, to find profit in the rest of the world, which had disappeared, if you like, or been reduced drastically in the major economies. 
So if there's a decline in profitability in the major economies, they have to look elsewhere, apart from exploiting their own workforce, they have to look elsewhere for new areas to expand. As Rosa Luxemburg said in her one of the key points she makes, that, that inevitably there was an expansion to the, to the rest of the world that hadn't been properly expa- uh, exploited by capitalism to try and boost the profits of, of capital. And here we are in the early part of the 21st century, and I think we're in a similar situation because I just said that profitability is very low in the major economies. We know we, we see big profits from Amazon or the rest of it, but don't be fooled. The average profitability for the average company in the major economies is poor. It's poor. And if they've got a lot of debt, it's even worse. They're in a more difficult position. So there's an intensification to get more profit from the rest of the world to increase the profitability. So that means increased rivalry between the imperialist economies. I know they're all supposed to be sitting in an alliance in NATO ready to smack Russia. But within them, they've got arguments themselves between Europe and the US and so on. And also the need to expand and to the intensification of rivalry is inevitable, I think, over the next decade or so. The main enemies, as far as the imperialist bloc is concerned, are those people who might take a share of uh, what's available, China, Russia, and so on. And so that rivalry is going to intensify. It's dangerous. It's, I think it's one of the challenging situations of the 21st century. You've got others. We've got right, hugely rising inequality. We've got climate change. And this inter-imperialist rivalry, which you could say from the period of the 19th 50s up until the, maybe the last second, until the end of the Pax Americana and the collapse of the Soviet Union was relatively muted. Now it's going to intensify in the 21st century. I just had, as I missed a question by Ashok, he said, What about new imperialism and the arguments going on there? There's some people argue, as I understand it, don't tell me if I'm wrong, that actually the battle is now most of the exchange, trade, investment, so on, goes on between the imperialist bloc and not with the imperialist bloc and the global south. And this is where the, so imperialism has changed. The old idea of imperialism that Lenin talked about of an imperialist bloc and the rest of the world has faded away because most trade and investment takes place between the major capitalist blocs, uh, countries. I think that's the new imperialist argument, sort of. The alternative extreme at the other end, no, it's what we have is an absolute super degradation exploitation of the global south by multinational companies in the West. And that's the real contradiction that exists in in the world. My argument to that is both have some points to it. Yes, yes, most trade investment takes place with the major capitalists. But what our evidence shows quite clearly, there is a significant difference between the imperialist bloc and the rest of the world that has not disappeared in 100 years. It's got, if anything, worse, with a few exceptions. And that drives this uh, rivalry and this major chasm in humanity, which continues to exist. And so new imperialism is not not a a good excuse for avoiding the the reality that imperialism is still there. Whether it's caused by super exploitation of the workers of the South or it's caused by the relative technological or driven by the relative technological superiority of the imperialist bloc against dominated bloc, we can argue about. But I think, if you like, I'm sort of in the middle here on this uh, argument between the two groups, as, as I understand it, anyway. Thanks, Michael. I, I, um, I wanted to kind of uh, address uh, uh, some of the questions around the tendency of the falling rate of profit. Um, so why are so many heterodox economists or other heterodox economists such as post-Keynesians or even Marxists dis- sort of dismissive of it entirely. I'm thinking of people like Michael Heinrich who says, you know, the tendency is indeterminate, that it's empirically unproven, and that it's based on a bad translation of Engels and that Marx actually had serious doubts about the tendency himself. Well, what there's their arguments and then why they have these arguments. That's the two, in a way, two separate questions. But let me just start by putting the picture to uh, listeners. The majority of economists and mainstream economics and conventional wisdom doesn't talk about profit at all, apart from what you read in the papers, oh, Amazon's got a load of profit. But in terms of understanding what's going on in a capitalist economy, why there are crises, why there are booms and slumps on a regular basis, 
mainstream economics has absolutely nothing to say on it, and certainly nothing to say to relate it to profits. So let's get this right. 95% of every economist or strategist that goes on and writes papers or appears anywhere has nothing to say about this. Uh, so we're down to the 5% of heterodox economists. First of all, the Keynesians don't really talk about profits. Uh, profit, what they think causes of crises are due to a lack of demand. What do they mean by lack of demand? Some of them say it's a lack of consumption, households not spending enough, workers not having enough wages. Or the more sophisticated ones say it's a lack of uh, investment demand. Why there's a lack of investment demand at one point when there isn't is not particularly explained. All these arguments I present on my blog and other papers, so I won't go into too much detail. Then we get to what we call, what Ashok calls a heterodox, which is the more radical economists. Some of them are called post-Keynesians, who, who argue, yes, there are crises, and we need to understand why there are crises. And they are regular, and they, do, they are a feature of capitalism. But again, apparently, profit and profitability is not the cause of these crises. It's, again, a lack of demand or financial instability, financialization, too much credit, too much debt. But one thing it's not is a falling rate of profit. It's nothing to do with it. Uh, no. So when then we get to the Marxists. Now, I have to say that one of the Marxists is Marx. Uh, and in Volume 3 of Capital, Marx, and in other places, actually writes about the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, particularly in Volume 3, in three chapters, 13 to 15, but also elsewhere. So one of the Marxists, 160 years ago, thought that this was relevant to the understanding of crises under capitalism. Since then, this particular author, Karl Marx, has been refuted or dismissed as being wrong, or we've been able to get down into the mega works of his writings and his scribbles uh, somewhere in, in Berlin, and we find that perhaps he didn't actually believe it himself and rejected it later on. So we can dismiss chapters 13 to 15 and any other mention of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall uh, as being Marxist, because not only do the rest of us Marxists disagree, and I have to say, those who claim to be Marxist economists, I would say 90% of them, although we're re reducing it a bit, don't agree that the law of the tendency of the rate of profit has anything to do with the crises or contradictions in capitalism, it's an irrelevance. As most of these Marxists who take that view, I think we're getting, we're forcing them down a bit, uh, took the view, particularly from the 60s onwards, that Keynes was more accurate about what was going on in capitalism, and that if we look at the logic of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, it's actually theoretical logic, it was illogical, uh, to use Paul Sweezy's phrase and then Michael Heinrich's phrase, indeterminate. In other words, you don't know that the rate of profit would fall if A happens and B happens. It's completely indeterminate. So when we look at the rate of profit, the law of the tendency of the profit, it doesn't explain whether it goes up or down. There's no certainty, that, no trend downwards that drives it that can be counteracted. It's, it's an indeterminate theory. It doesn't hold. There's a number of reasons for this that are presented by various mathematical views of non-Marxists, called Sraffians, who argue that this uh, theory doesn't uh, hold logically. And unfortunately, some Marxist uh, economists seem to agree with this. I think there's been a whole body of Marxist economist authors, certainly since uh, the, the 1990s and earlier, actually, from William Kirkady, actually was in 1984, came up with a refutation of the logical side of a Marxist theory and show that it was perfectly logical if you understood the process involved, a temporal process, which I won't go into in this because that's a whole discussion on its own. But there has been a refutation of this criticism of the law being illogical. Then I have to come to the empirical evidence. I just cannot believe it. I wrote this recent post where I said the evidence is just overwhelming that there is a long-term tendency, an actual fall in the profitability of capital on an average basis, not only in several countries, but globally, we can, we can identify it, not just by lunatic monocausals like myself, as I'm accused of sometimes. Michael Roberts never talks about anything but the rate of profit, not just by me, but a whole range of other people who have now written on it. And we've summarized that this body of evidence is overwhelming that there is a fall, a fall an average fall in the average rate of profit 
globally in, in the major economies over a long period of time with ups and downs. Now, you could say, well, yes, yeah, so what? What relevance is that to uh, what's going on in capitalism now? What, is that relevant to crises? Is that relevant to what's going to happen in the future? We've partly discussed that in relation to imperialism, but I think it's also very relevant to crises. And we can draw Marx's logic in chapters 13 to 15, combined with the empirical evidence that we now have with better data, with research that's gone on, particularly in the last 30 years, to give us an even more compelling argument that this is relevant to what's going on in capitalism. And as relevant, I'm a bit cheekily suggested that the skeptics of uh, the uh, evidence are a bit like climate skeptics who just deny that there's climate change, despite the evidence being building up that there is. Perhaps that's a little unfair on them, but I couldn't resist it to make that point because the evidence is so strong. That that brings me to the, the point that, to finish on this long argument, that Marx dropped the whole thing and all we needed to, so forget it, even, even if it might be right, Marx certainly dropped it. And if Marx dropped it, it's probably wrong. Well, I know Michael Heinrich is an expert scholar on the work and has read the original writings, but it's very difficult to read Marx's only Engels and his daughter, Eleanor, and to some extent, Karl Kautsky's wife, could actually read this stuff and uh, get it into something that we could uh, read ourselves. And he's been working through it. And he says, Michael says, and I've debated with this him, with him on several times, that after he wrote this, in the 1860s, Marx never really referred to the rate of profit again. And if you read his writings in the 1870s when he's talking about crises, where's the rate of profit? And then he talks about it. So what's going on here? And then if we look, we can see he struggled with the rate of profit, trying to make it work in the 1870s, and then he dumped it. So, so Michael says, I presume that demonstrates that he did, didn't think it was, was wrong and it was irrelevant. Well, I don't think it does. A number of other scholars have looked at this, particularly uh, the other argument is that Engels twisted chapters 13 to 15 to make it look as though it was important. Poor old Engels, doing the best he could to edit this illegible stuff, is accused of of fiddling the the result. But Fred Mosley has done a very good study on this, and he says this is nonsense. If anything, Engels reduced the impact of the chapters 13 to 15 that Marx wanted to make by the way he rearranged it. And there are one or two phrases that perhaps he shouldn't have done, but on the whole, you'd have to say that it Clearly, if Marx wrote it, it hadn't, it's not distorted what Marx wrote in, the, in Capital Volume 3. Now, whether he dropped it afterwards, there's no evidence for it. I mean, the biggest one is that when Engels took over the writing, he put this into, into Volume 3. Now, Marx and Engels from 1870 to 1883 were meeting every day, like we are now, every day, having a few drinks. Now, if Marx had said, well, I've been puzzling over the rate of profit, I decided it's crap. So let's let's drop it. He never said this to Engels, as far as I know. And it's just nonsense because he goes on. If you look at it, he goes on trying to work out how he can make uh, the organic composition capital. What would happen if he choose it this way or he changed the turnover and so on. So actually following directly on from that, I'm, I'm curious then to hear about what about the the Marxists who might think that profitability is important, but who might think slightly differently about the kind of chain of causation maybe in this so could you say something about you could still subscribe to like a crisis theory or or an understanding of kind of boom and slump or you know in a marxist framework but who would then say well no it's not it's not the you know declining profitability it's over investment it's overproduction capitalism for instance now is in a crisis of overproduction especially in in china for example well i think that's very good this this is this is the sort of thing we should discuss, really, because this gets us to the nub of the issue. What is overproduction? Well, overproduction is a slump, isn't it? It's when capitalists can't sell all the goods they've produced and workers can't buy them all, and we have a slump. Workers get unemployed, they're sitting on the dole or whatever, their incomes are reduced. Capitalists are still producing, so we've got plenty of stuff being produced and people can't buy them. I mean, what a crazy world capitalism is, but that's the slump doesn't it? That's overproduction. It's the definition of the slump. But it's not a cause. It doesn't explain why we've got over. Overproduction doesn't explain overproduction, in my view. What we have to ask, and Marx looked at that, he said, overproduction really means overaccumulation of capital relative to the profitability available to capitalists. So they've invested 
in the expectation they're going to get a certain amount of profit or some profit to reinvest and to grow and so on, and it doesn't happen. They don't get, and particularly the weaker companies, not only do they don't get much more profit, they actually possibly get less. They start to be in a position where they're going bust. And so they, they close down completely or get taken over. So we get a process, a cascading effect into a slump. So a slump is when there's lack of demand from workers and overproduction by capitalists. That's the definition. But the process begins through the overaccumulation of investment relative to profit. Why is there an overaccumulation of investment relative to profit? Well, because what is going on underneath the which the capitalists are not aware behind their backs, is there's a tendency for the profitability of the overall economy to fall. And that eventually reached the point where there could actually be a massive profit fall. So to, when you've got a falling rate of profit, you don't immediately get a falling massive profit. In fact, all it means is the massive profit is going up perhaps less and less each production cycle because the profitability is falling. I've had this big debate with David Harvey several times where he tells me that Michael... You're obsessed with the rate of profit. What about the mass of profit? Surely the mass of profit matters. And that if you read Marx, he says, when the rate of profit is falling, the mass of profit is rising. So you have a double-edged law. Well, I, I had to sell David. I think we had a debate on historical materialism. It was in 2019. Quite a large people there, a number of people there. And I said, well, you know, this is not a surprise to anybody who studies the law of the tenth rate of profit fall and Volume three, it's in there, the double-edged law. Yes, I know. And that's precisely the point, because Marx goes on and he explains the crisis as being one where there is an absolute overproduction of capital. And that's the point when you, capitalists invest more and they actually get less profit, not just a little bit more or less than they expected, but actually falls. I mean, things start to go to pieces before then because capitalists are not equal. The worst ones are already un underwater and it cascades through the system. So... Uh, the tendency of the report of fall delivers a falling rate of profit eventually on behind the backs of the capitalists. And then they find that their prof profits are not rising very much and perhaps even starting to fall. And then you get the slump. So the causal sequence, in my view, is you start with profit because that's what capitalism is all about. Where is profit coming from? Profit is the driving force of capitalist economy and production. Start with profit. What happens to that leads to what happens to investment. What happens to investment leads to what happens to production. What happens to production leads to laying off workers and employment and loss of wages and you get the spiral. And when the costs of production go down, the employment goes down and uh, capitalist factories are closed down and they merge and the costs of production are reduced and capital, then the profitability rises again and we start the whole shit, the whole crap. I use that word because Marx used that word. The whole crap starts again. And, and that... That is uh, the process I see of the causal uh, sequence. I have to say, finish on this, but there's empirical evidence to show this. We can show that if you look at the recessions in the United States since 1945, every recession, look, the first thing that goes down is profitability and profits, then investment, and one year or so after investment is when you get the production crisis and then you get workers laid off and consumption falls. If you look also, if you look at consumption, I mean, the Keynesians say crises are caused, slumps are caused by the lack of workers having wages and consumption. Most times in slumps, consumption doesn't fall that very much, certainly not before the crisis, but investment falls dramatically before the slump comes. And why does investment fall? Because profitability is falling uh, or profits are coming down. That's the causal sequence. I looked at it. Consumption doesn't fall in the middle of the slump. It falls a bit. Inevitably, because people are getting losing their jobs, but already the investment has slumped and its investment has to come up before the whole process starts again. It's now we're coming out of the COVID slump. What will be crucial to how fast uh, capitalism recovers and comes out of this is whether profitability rises and whether investment follows it to go up. In my view, is struggling to get profitability up and we won't see a dramatic rise. Some people claim we're entering the roaring 20s now, like 1920s is going to be 2020s because COVID's cleansed things out. Unfortunately, I don't think it's cleansed much out for capitalism. It's killed a lot of people, but it's not actually transformed capitalism so that you could see a you know a decade of, of expansion. Why do I say that? Because I'm looking at the indicators that tell me that investment, productivity, and profitability. Those are the factors, not whether 
consumption. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. You asked if I if we remembered the, the the epic debate you had with David Harvey from 2019, and actually that was right after my book launch, and I was supposed to be, I was asked to be on that, and then I was like, okay, I'm already tired, but also I should let these kings slug it out, and it was epic. It was great. I, I remember that, and your book was excellent. You mentioned in the paper um, that outsourced production or global value chains sort of complicates the picture as global buyers typically in the advanced capitalist world outsource production typically to dominated countries to appropriate surplus value. Yeah. But like, I wanted to just, it, you say you say that it complicates it, but it, to put it in perspective about value chains, it's estimated that value added trade contributes about 30% of, to GDP of dominated countries, 18% to dominant, to dominant countries. So that's about five trillion of nineteen trillion global gross exports, according to UNCTAD. But yet you say that this is quote that the international value chain does not bring about any substantial change to the nature of uh, of imperialism. I, I was wondering if you could speak to that a bit. But also, one of the key interventions of your piece is that both imperial and dominated countries profits fall, but that due to lower organic composition of capital, the profitability of dominated countries are persistently above that of imperialist countries. Why is that the case? But you also argue that the fall in profitability by the dominated countries is persistently higher than that of the imperialist countries. So how do you explain this sort of volatility within the, in the dominated countries? It is a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Um, I suppose if you, you, listeners can realize that we take this point first, that the countries in the global south are dominated countries, the countries the lower technology, therefore by definition, almost, have a lower organic composition of capital. It's less investitive relatively in technology, means of production relative to labor. They use their cheap labor more than they use technology. So that means that their profitability will be higher in, within their national context compared to the imperialist bloc, which have better technology. Therefore, they have lower profitability because they're not investing. They've not got so many workers producing value. So we have those two differences. But when you go on to the international market, that's what's happening. An equalization of this process goes on, and there's a transfer of the extra profitability or surplus value that the Global South has got to the imperialist block through the process of trade. And that also happens, I think, through the value chain. I think that's that's the way in which it also complements, I would say, the international trade. So you've got uh, competing companies on the international market, but also you've got vertical integration uh, between uh, the imperialist bloc countries operating in the global south. So those two things come together in a way, except one operates on the international trading market, the other operates through uh, price changes. But what that means is if the dominated bloc is attempting to improve its technology, then it will. there is a tendency to see a rise in their organic composition of capital compared to the major imperialist block, which although they've got a higher organic composition of capital, their growth in the organic composition of capital is probably slower in, compared to some many of the global south countries. The obvious ones are China and East Asia and so on. So although they, uh, that there's a tendency for the dominated countries' higher profitability to fall more quickly towards the major economies, the imperialist blocks profitability levels, at least that's what it shows on the evidence. That's never going to get, in my view, <laughs> together. Uh, but what you do see that tendency. Actually, if you take out China in a lot of this data, and I suppose we didn't do that very clearly in the paper, then, the, then these narrowings or these changes are reduced dramatically because China is just so much of an exception when it comes to the dominated block compared to, including India. I mean, uh, it just transforms these graphs and misleads people into imagining that imperialism may be disappearing, or that actually there is a load of semi-imperialist countries around the world, and not just this clearly defined of imperialist block of a very small number of countries that existed 100 years ago, which is one of the key conclusions we reach in this particular paper. I mean, it, it is one of our key conclusions, I think. We weren't expecting it, but that's what the evidence appears to show to us. What happens then when, if we think about countries in the global south so the kind of some of the most dominated countries with very high rates of exploitation where that in part is facilitated obviously also by a very young workforce like a youthful 
population distribution when that changes. So in those countries, like I'm thinking about all the big like Vietnam, Indonesia, India, Nigeria, when that population distribution changes and you the kind of re- reserve army of labor kind of disappears in a way, it becomes more difficult to increase the rate of exploitation of workers. So what are the outcomes of that? I mean, doesn't that just mean that it then becomes more difficult to, that's going to drive up wages, that's going to make the exploitation more difficult? Yeah, I mean, the big, the big uh, gain, as you say, yeah, sorry, the big gain you say, so you take even just the last 50 years, well, how has imperialism expanded? It expanded through a massive uh, global expansion to use cheap labour around the world. The huge resources of human labour power, which immediately after the Second World War existed in actually in the global north as well, in devastated Europe, Japan, elsewhere. These, the, this allowed one of the factors to drive the golden age of high profitability because of the huge amount of surplus labour that was available. But then when we get into the second half of the 20th century, later on, we can see the expansions into all around the world by imperialism to suck up the use of this uh, human labour power. And I think John Smith actually did a, a graph which shows a dramatic increase in the uh, industrialization of the global south the number of workers who are industrial workers or urban workers dramatically increases while it's flattened out completely in the major capitalist economies and so all the expansion of the working class however you want to define it is actually in the dominated block so i would say when you run out of that that increases the problem and arthur lewis made the called it the lewis turning point when uh, you run out of cheap labor and then wages start to rise and starts to uh, squeeze the economies they say they either have to expand through technological expansion and higher productivity or they've got a problem uh, and i think that's a that is a long-term problem for capitalism it runs out of human labor power but we're not there yet i mean as you pointed out nigeria 760 million people by 2060 it's going to be a mega most of those people are, are open for exploitation. There's still plenty of room, I think, for surplus labour to be exploited by capitalism if it can uh, use its uh, powers to uh, establish that through its multinational companies or through local companies. But I think the general principle, the point you're making over the long term in this 21st century is that capitalism is running out of human labour. We know that the growth in the workforces around the world, where China's declining now, and most, apart from India and a few other countries like Nigeria, population is, is slowing down. So this is an issue. If we, do, if we don't have more labour, we don't have more value. And so you have to get more out of the existing labour. But between now and 2060, I think there are a few other problems capitalism faces before it runs out of the labour force. And we know what they are, so we need to go over them. But all these things, the 21st century is going to be quite a difficult period for capitalism. It might see its end. I won't be there to see it, guys, but um, I'm looking forward to you telling me while I'm up there in heaven on the right-hand side of God. What would, I, would, I had a question, kind of a, a more methodological question, if we return to the paper, which is, so you, the countries you look at are the G7 countries and the G20 countries, well, yeah, so the G20 countries, which is really 19, and, and the EU, but what is the thinking behind focusing on those countries and the rate of profit in those countries when at least intuitively to me, it seems like if you looked at countries like the ones we just talked about, uh, the ones that aren't in the G20, like Vietnam or like the Philippines, actually in those countries, my intuition tells me that actually the trend would be even starker if we if we looked at it. But what is the thinking behind those? Because I think you have the data for all, right? In the pen tables, it does have the data for all those countries. Why do you focus on the G20? We decided that uh, the G20 gives you 75% of the world GDP. And that uh, it was probably, it was just easier to get, and we could get data for longer periods. So a lot of the countries you talk about, by the time you get down further down 30 or 40 years ago, you're starting to get rubbish data, even in the pen tables. And it was just a little bit more, well, a little bit more, we felt a little robust about the data if we concentrate on G20 and G7 to do our work. But you're absolutely right. There's no, re- in principle, the data could be there and certainly could be developed. And um, I'm very happy to invite people to join a team to do this and see if we can progress it further to a wider scale. I noticed, for example, in the, as I say, my latest post in, in the blog, that 
the Amherst guys have used the pen tables and the extended tables to cover 56 countries as opposed to 19 or 26 in my case, or in our case. And uh, before that, Esteban Maito's case for the World Radio Problem of just 14. We've now got the Amherst guys taking it up to 56, at least for the period since 1960. So, yes, there's every possibility of expansion of its data and the empirical work. And I, I share your intuition that this is going to produce either basically the same result, which is one of the reasons we didn't do it because we're too late. <laughs> and the other reason is it might produce a starker result because you're now including countries that are way further down the scale if you want to have a spectrum on this, what, what the World Bank likes to call the low-income countries. These countries generally weren't in our list because we had the G20. Um, if you include those, the, the, uh, I mean, Richie has some interesting figures on that and so does Veneziani, who looks at other countries. I noticed in the notes you sent me, they said, what about Saudi Arabia? Well, uh, Veneziani does say that Saudi Arabia, on his working out of exploitation, is more of the exploiter than the exploited uh, because of its position in the, the Middle East and so on. And I'm sure that's probably correct. We're going to find ex exceptions to this uh, position. Whether they're part of the imperialist block um, as such is a, perhaps again a question. So the paper is has... You know, there's rough edges to it because when we talk about the economics of modern imperialism and define an imperialist block, we can't always get it exactly right because uh, we have these other countries a bit of an exception. And also, it's to do with political, military, and strategic positions as well. So, uh, for example, and now if you have the imperialist block, put it another way, is Belgium imperialist? Well, it clearly is, but would you really want to say that it was a major imperialist power? You see, what's what I mean? It's a, it's a little tricky when it comes to the political level. So when we're just looking at the mechanics of modern imperialism from the law of value, we had to make a decision about what we were going to look at to get a result. So you covered actually the Saudi Arabia thing and, and kind of I was thinking about rentier economies and so on and whether that clouds the picture in some way. So I think the Deutsche Memorial lecture, I think from this, or that was published this year in HM was about rentier capitalism as well. And does it cloud the picture somewhat though still to think about the role of OPEC countries or, or the, the Gulf countries in terms of, it seems like a less clear relationship, right? Because the role of labor in the, in the extraction of those commodities and so on is a little bit different. Yeah, well, countries like Saudi Arabia, energy rich countries, which are actually getting, getting their production on, and value production out of something that they control physically in their country. That's the old definition of rent, if you like. So you could say this is a form of rent. And if people, everybody could come in and get an oil well in Saudi Arabia and compete with each other, then that rent factor would decline. But once the Saudi Arabians go on the world market with their oil, then we're in, and assuming that OPEC doesn't hold, because it's a, it's a rentier block, if you like, it, it, it's the process, the underlying process that we've talked about of the transfer of value through the uh, long-term difference between technological superiority of different countries still applies even in the oil industry, even if sectors of the oil industry or the energy industry in general can actually extract even a larger proportion because of their natural monopoly position. Uh, then the other form of rentier capitalism, of course, is the finance sector. Um, you'd have to say that countries like Britain and the US are rentier in many ways. I mean, Britain particularly, actually, it's got a huge banking sector. Its manufacturing is rubbish. It, uh, it's not in a position to compete on world markets in a whole range of uh, export industries. It mainly derives its increasing. Of course, it's not true entirely, but it's, I'm exaggerating, but a, a sizable section of, of economic production or economy and also value comes actually through the financial sector, through the, the movement of money, operating uh, cross-border finance and so on for the banks and so on. And they're actually transferring a lot of the surplus value created by other countries or controlled by other countries. And that's how they get a share, just like bankers get a cut out of industrial production internationally. So we have these rentier sectors, in particularly strong in countries like uh, Britain. I mean, the ultimate rentier economy is Luxembourg in that sense. It's got a, it's just, all it does is deposit cakes of surplus value from all the other countries and shifts it around. Switzerland, of course, 
is not entirely a rentier economy in that sense. It has quite a sizable industrial economy. So, so there is that factor. But I think it's a bit like saying, if you look at the national economies, there are monopolies in national economies, and there are controls and uh, curbs and the ability for capital to flow freely across sectors and borders. And so certain groups can maintain a monopoly. But in my view, not in- inevitably. What happens in 30 years, Saudi Arabia will find its fossil fuel uh, rentier position completely weakened, maybe, and replaced by those that control lithium. So monopolies don't stay as they are. And so I don't think it's a decisive factor in, in the process that we've been discussing. Great. That's everything for today. Many, many thanks to you, Michael, for illuminating the already excellent piece And thank you, of course, to our dear listeners. We hope you'll join again in the future. Thanks to David Mab for the artwork and to Thijs Koelen for the soundtrack of the podcast. I would also just want to really thank, um, thank Michael for coming. And, um, and, and uh, it was a great talk. And also the, the paper can't, can't uh, encourage enough. It's a great paper, uh, open access. Uh, encourage everyone to subscribe to the podcast read the article on the HM website, check out Michael's website, uh, the next uh, recession.wordpress. Also the forthcoming book with uh, Yelmo Cochere, um, which is the 21st century capitalism through the prism of value, which comes out this summer. Uh, and then yeah, subscribe to the HM journal and follow us on Twitter uh, at Histmat. <laughs> <laughs>